everyone. Thanks for tuning in to Power Athlete Radio featuring The Crew, where a former pro football player, a D3 all-star, and a guy who peaked in high school use strength and conditioning as an excuse to talk about everything but. Now here's John, Luke, and Tex. Drive on. Kick the wheels right before the hammer strikes to make sure the levels fall from low. I got them girls shining oh so bright. All right, Power Athlete Nation, welcome to another episode of Power Athlete Radio. I'm John, and I'm joined by... Tex, hello. Tex, hello. And we're also joined by the voice of an angel, Dr. Matt Zanis. Matt, say hello. The voice of an angel and the hair of a god. <laughs> I, you know, I like to think a little bit, and you know, and the mind of um, kind of a young Leonardo da Vinci slash Socrates, you know, somewhere in there, but uh, definitely a person... Who has a gift for healing and uh, you know not a bad guy to sit and have a few old fashions with? So no, definitely not. Yeah. And also the god of thunder and light. So I'm just bringing down more light on everyone. So what's going on with you, man? I mean, um, you know, I I talk to oh, you often, man. but uh, you know, fill up, uh, you know, fill everybody in on what you're doing, what's kind of going on, and more importantly, um, you know, what's 2021 hold for rooted in movement. Oh man, things are going great with rooted in movement. So. Uh, business has just been kind of skyrocketing as far as the remote programming and helping people move and work through injuries. But then also from the training side of things with educating other providers on how to provide more confidence and still more confidence and help other people get out of their own ways um, and really, really start to build their practice to a point where that they can understand movement in greater detail and have some better long-term outcomes as well. Um, but that side of things is also Olympic year. <laughs> which is weird to say in an odd year. So 2021, we have the Tokyo Olympic Games coming up here at the end of July, and we are starting uh, full force with our travel schedule again this year. So it's going to be a bit of a shit show because there are a lot of unknown variables going on, but it's also kind of exciting at the same time. Can you give the um, audience and the listeners what you do for USA mm-hmm. in terms of Olympics, but also what you do as a, in your capacity? Yeah, so I am technically, if we want to put a title to it, Director of High Performance for USA Shooting. So working with shotgun, rifle, and pistol. And then I also uh, consult with all of the other summer sports. Um, So, you know, you name it, uh, track and field, wrestling, I got it all. (laughs) I was just up there working with the gymnasts and everything back in July or January before all this stuff went down. So I get a lot of variety of of athletes, but I travel now with uh, USA shooting for the past four years. Um, Great group of, of guys and girls and a very unique uh, group of athletes when it comes to not only movement but then also skill acquisition and perception as well. Yeah, no, I mean the uh, yeah. the instant feedback of shooting a weapon is one of mm-hmm. the greatest indicators I've found for almost not only mechanics but also movement. I mean, you know, it's like instant feedback. Like, did I do what I needed to do right? Was I maintaining position, stability? I mean, all these other key factors. So, I um, mm-hmm. I did. You know me, I enjoy shooting. So anything like whether it be guns, twenty twos, rifles. Uh, pistols, uh, bow and arrow, whatever it looks like. So that's killer, man. I'm I'm stoked to hear when you told me that the other day, I was stoked to hear that the Olympics is coming back. I mean, obviously in an odd mm-hmm. year uh, is kind of throwing out the cycle. And, um, but how is that going to affect these guys? I mean, I mean, obviously they were training for 2021 and oh, they kind yeah. of train in these quads. Now they got to extend it. And like, I was thinking in terms of Olympic lifting, like think about those guys peaking over four years and now mm-hmm. having to mm-hmm. extend that another year. Yeah, I know it, it's been interesting because when the whole entire uh, pandemic thing started with the coronavirus, um, all these athletes were peaked 
right? They're ready to rock and roll this year. They were reaching full stride, full speed. And then all of a sudden the rug gets sweeped out from underneath them. And there was a lot of, um, I guess, more psychological components than anything else because they didn't know how to handle it. Right. So we took them from this high and we eventually had to bring them back down <laughs> to a lower plateau. Um, and in the beginning, there were actually, there were a lot of uh, meetings with our sports psych teams uh, where everybody was getting on and, and figuring out how to navigate these waters. Uh, but now leading into this year, our main job, uh, actually starting a couple weeks ago, is to start ramping them back up and hopefully getting them back into the state that they were at before. But, you know, that's going to be tough, dude. Like you, you have all this momentum going for you and you got in the right mindset. And now you have to try and reclaim that, which I think is going to be it's going to make this Olympic Games in particular a very, very interesting um, one to watch to see who has been able to uh, keep the right mindset over this year. But it's also it's going to be interesting from the standpoint of we have started the competitions for the new quad for Paris in 2024, which means we have all of our regularly scheduled competitions that are also vitally important uh, to our planning on trying to compete in 24 because you have to perform. So we have to perform and peak now literally pretty much every single month leading up to the Olympics. So um, uh, they're going to push out this Olympics to 2021, but then you go back mm -hmm. on the regular schedule. So you're going to have a right five year and, a, and then into a three year. Wow. Mm -hmm. Is it something yeah. more like I always wonder with the Olympics, um, you know, I mean, the. I mean, in the NFL, we got 16 games every year to be able to, you know, playoff <laughs> games, warm up games. So you had a lot of opportunities where in the Olympics, it's like every four years you get your one opportunity to go out there and do your best or, or your worst. Uh, mm -hmm. Is it. I mean, the physical component is probably the biggest one. I mean, the fact that everybody shut down and these guys didn't have access to training facilities, but was that universal around the world? I mean, I, I know what, what happened here in the UK and some, you know, in Italy and some of the foreign countries, but I wonder if like some of those smaller countries like didn't shut down the same way and those guys didn't necessarily miss their training. Yeah, I don't know um, as far as what all the other countries were able to do, but I can imagine uh, across the board with a lot of the major players in the Olympics, it was just, it was just like anything else where the major training centers were shut down. So these athletes that were residents there or relied on those facilities to get their training in, they had to resort to other means, um, whether it be hiring personal coaches or uh, buying equipment on their own. I mean, it, it was tough. Like you think about something like swimming for a summer sport where they shut the pools down. Like, yeah. <laughs> how are you able to actually go in and get any training in? Um, so people have to get creative, right. And that's where I think having somebody like me in their corner, like with the shooting team, I was consulting with them every single month for our Olympic teams and helping them move better and designing programs. It's stuff that they could do at home, um, in conjunction with their, with their shooting training as well. Awesome. Uh, is there a lot of dry firing or do, do they have any shooting simulation or yeah. was there anything <sighs> that they were doing? Yeah. So rifle and pistol does a lot of, a lot of dry firing, but it, it's very much, um, routine movement patterns, right? So you think of something like pistol or like rifle, you're staying in a very specific position for an extended period of time. So it is an endurance component with something like shotgun for trap and skeet. There are, there's a lot more variability of movement, a lot more rotational capacity needed, but, uh, with something like skeet and trap, you, you do know that the birds, the targets are going to be flying in certain directions. So it's about getting that repetition in with your mounting technique. So there's not necessarily, you're not dry firing there, but you're continually practicing 
uh, the steps needed when you walk up to the line, um, what that looks like when you call pool and how your mount looks. So it's, it's very, very uniform in nature. Interesting. No, uh, you know, I, I still dry fire almost daily. So like if, um, I always felt that, you know, maybe if I get into the range every couple of weeks, but if I can continue to dry fire and like work on draws and technique and all that, like I won't like, uh, carry a pistol unless I've actually worked on it and dry fired it and been able to, you know, Hey, this is how it goes into the holster in and out. You know, and I work on that, like, you know, and I, and I work on it uh, all the time with my, uh, with my rifle shooting as well. Cause I get so many opportunities to, to hunt invasive species here in Texas that, um, you know, one thing you don't want to do is miss. So <laughs> no, I've done enough of that in my no, it's, life. It's an interesting story. So, you know, I have my six hour P226 nine millimeter pistol that I do a lot of dry firing with. And, uh, a few weeks ago, or actually right before Christmas, I sought out a world champion three gun shooter here to give me some, um, training lessons on the pistol because out of all the firearms, like I'm really, really great with a rifle and a shotgun and obviously a bow I shot competitively. Uh, but the pistol is always one that's kind of been, I've been kind of mediocre with I was competent at it, but not really great. So I hired this guy to essentially overhaul my everything. So stance grip, uh, my line of sight, the whole nine yards. And the way I was originally taught how to shoot a pistol was closing the non-dominant eye. Like I do with the rifle. Uh-huh. And he took me, yeah, yeah. He took me away from that on day one. And we spent 45 minutes <laughs> trying to sight in a target that was like 15 feet away. Wow. And the whole entire time, my depth perception kept trying to focus on the rear sight instead of the front sight and had to close one eye to finally find the front sight and then recalibrate myself. I tell you what, John, by the time I was done with that 45 minutes later, I had the most massive fucking headache I've ever had in my life because my eyes were just trying to go in and out and using those muscles. Um, like they never, they never been used before. Wow. I, um, uh, I do know that you have to close one eye, you know, obviously shooting rifles, but, um, you know, the reason I like, like low power variable optics is that, you know, on a one or a two, you tend to shoot with your eyes open and all the red dots I have on my mm-hmm. rifles, mm-hmm. everything is always both eyes open. So, yeah. uh, if, if anything, it's probably easier to go from like shooting two eyes open in that environment to all of a sudden going into some like, uh, you know, precision stuff where you're closing an eye and trying to, you know, cock mm-hmm. the head a little bit, but it's pretty funny. You can see like the guys that are really, and I, I dude, I was super fortunate to, um, go with the guys from NSW out to mid South, which is, um, the mm-hmm. Shaw shooting school, which is the, you know, NSW shooting school. Um, the the techniques and how those guys moved was so seamless and effortless. I mean, the definition of yeah. athleticism in real time. But what was amazing to me is that there was no vertical uh, movement. Everything was like a step and like everybody's head was perfect. Mm-hmm. As they drew, there was no movement, no, no side to side. And it was just like strategically and very technically moving the pistol and the weapon in such a way without any head deviation, bring it up into the line of sight. And I remember leaving there thinking, Jesus, like these guys are not only are they well sorted, I mean the best in the world, but understanding like that seamless and effortless is like, if it looks like you're working hard, you are working hard. Like, and those and dudes dude, make it I, look so easy. I don't think I ever told you this too, but um, when I first got involved with USA shooting, they were seen by the Olympic committee as non-athletes essentially. They weren't given a lot of the same rights and privileges as a bunch of the the other more well-known sports like swimming and diving and track and field and all that. But if you think about it, the seamless and effortlessness, I actually used your definition of athleticism when I presented to their board on why it's so important for them to have a movement coach and a PT that's with them full time because it's that seamless and effortless movement that is essentially their ability to detect proprioception and kinesthetic awareness. 
right? So you have to be able to feel through the feet. There's a lot of movement going on. You have to know where your body's at in space without having to think about it. Because if you are thinking about it, you are not going to make that shot. Those targets are make, are moving at 60 miles an hour, especially with shotgun. Sure. Right? You have to be uh, really quick with the hand-eye coordination. And there's a lot, a lot of low-hanging fruit that could be picked. Like just building up the physical capacity of some of these athletes. Like, so they're not, you know, um, like some of the baseball pitchers out there that have big beer bellies and guts and going out there and competing on the Olympic stage, like look like athletes and improve the cardiovascular endurance to be able to withstand a whole entire week and a half worth of competition and not break down. Sure. And also by the way, figure out that not do, I kid you not, uh, talk about like seeing different tactics and strategies from other countries. There were literally shooting athletes that were in Olympic weightlifting shoes and platforms and pitching them forward because they truly figured out that if you get into the forefoot, you could actually control your rotation of the hips a lot more seamlessly. Now. Wow. That's so then, weird. I, I, I right? so, so, so getting the big toe in the ground and putting the stress on the front Shocker. of the foot allowed them to be more athletic as opposed from shooting yeah. off of your heels. Wow. Yeah. Crazy. What a, what a lot of, um, and, but you don't even need that, right? You actually just train the foot. Like we talk about, sure. you'll be able to pick up on that easily. But what a lot of our athletes were doing when we're in these big cushiony shoes, yeah. Right. So essentially walking around on clouds and they weren't getting any of that great feedback from the ground to tell their body how to fucking move efficiently. So they're working harder. And that's where you see a lot of these like back issues, neck issues, shoulder issues come up is because they're using way more muscle instead of being um, elastic in nature, so to speak, and actually moving the energy through the fascial systems and ingrained patterns and, and not having to use the muscles with so much force to move that gun that they just start to break down over time. Are you having them do dry fire with like the Nabusu, uh, like Matt? Like I always thought like uh, something like setting up there yeah. barefoot and being able to dry fire and being able to feel like as you bring the weapon out to be able to shoot and be able to launch that. I always thought that that, you know, that little element with the uh, Nabusu mats would be helpful. Yeah, actually, when I first started talking with Dr. Emily a couple of years ago, that was something that I was very interested in was doing some actual research studies on that. And ironically enough, um, I mean, I dry fire on my mats and I've sent a couple of mats to a few Olympic athletes who use them as well. But it was really interesting. I have a remote client that's up in um, Chicago. He's an FBI agent and he started training his foot and his ankle. He had some injuries from uh, previous experiences. We'll just say that. And, uh, they wanted to do surgery on it and he didn't want to do the surgery. So he contacted me and we started working through this. And after about two months of training the foot and ankle and re recalibrating uh, how his foot is interacting with the ground, along with using the insoles. So the Naboso insoles in his shoes, he went and had a, um, the best test fire he's ever had the best, like, uh, um, the shooting test that they use, the qualification scores sure. for the FBI that he's ever had his entire career. Wow. Shocker. Like coincidence or was there something yeah, in there? No, yeah. We'll just call it. Yeah. You yeah. just chalk it up to coincidence. Yeah. It's, it's, yeah, yeah this yeah. stuff doesn't work. No, it, it yeah. uh, it, it's exciting, man. I'm, uh, I am very excited to see what happens in, in, uh, not only this coming Olympics, but like, mm -hmm. you know, the fact that, um, you know, all these individuals are literally trained under this schedule and they call it a quad. And like, you know, now all of a sudden we're extending it from four to five years and to see like, not only like if like who can handle it, not only mentally, but was able to continue to train and physic physically, I think it's going to be an exciting year. And then slingshotting these guys into a three year instead of a four year cycle to try to get them ready for the next one. So I, I like it's uh it's going to be an excellent Olympics to watch. I'm excited for it. Yeah, so. yeah me too, dude. I'm pumped. And I'm going to be exciting to be there in person for my first one as well.
Nice. Well, uh, yeah, enough are, Olympic stuff, but um, let's jump in on our question. The reason so we let's, got them on the- let's qualify your expertise. What are some common wrist, hand, and elbow issues that you're taking on for your shooters? Oh, geez. Uh, there's a lot. So based on the position of holding the guns and, you know, we could just use shotgun as an example, this, the wrists stay in very, very specific positions. So you get a lot of, um, a lot of time under tension in these sustained positions. And that is what your nervous system then adapts to. So you see a lot of locking up of the wrists when, which will, ultimately lead to some issues at the elbow if the wrist can't move well because the elbow's going to try and take up the brunt of the force. And then same thing with the shoulder. They're stuck in this like hunched over protracted position, kyphotic curve of the upper back, and they can't get out of it, right? So if, if it's gone on for long enough, they'll end up developing some uh, length tension relationship issues in the upper back and you get a really weak upper back, but then it also causes a lot of nerve issues. What we're seeing coming from down from the neck because you know, a lot of these um, guys and girls, they're, they're, so, they're so kind of like high strung, like on the edge, like teetering on that line of competition of like being steady, but then also having enough energy to, to perform well and the breathing pattern changes. So now we're in this rounded forward shoulder position. They're using a lot of upper neck muscles to breathe and end up developing some compression issues of nerves as they come out of the neck and down into the shoulder um, and then around the pecs and down into the elbow joint, which you can definitely get into because that's how you kind of have to differentiate like what's going on at the elbow joint itself. Well, good thing we got you on because we got a little question from a caller <laughs> on how convenient. their elbow. Yeah. So let's go ahead and play it for our listeners. Ready, ready, go. Hey there, power athlete. My name is Corey Reed. I am 35. I am on week 15 of Bedrock. I'm loving the program, having some great PRs. But the last month or so, I've had what I think is uh, lifter's elbow, um, uh, experiencing some pretty sharp pain in my medial elbow and a burning sensation along the lateral side of the joint. Um, it flares whenever I open jars, shake hands, or pour a cup of coffee. Um, I'd like to keep lifting, but I'm not sure if I'm doing more harm than good. I hope uh, you guys can help with any thoughts you might have. Thank you. Bye. All right. Well, Corey, our caller, is following Bedrock, which is one of our uh, many programs, but really the foundational program that we use with our athletes. When you're brand new, you come in, you've never lifted weights, you're really trying to pick up that initial adaptation. We found that using a basic linear progression is by far the fastest, most efficient, best method for building that base level of strength. And Bedrock is that foundational program uh, that we've used for just a number of years. If you guys followed CrossFit football, it was the amateur progression. Uh, Bedrock is now, um, you know, that same amateur progression, but kind of a little more jiggy. And, and we push that out on Train Heroic. And- the, the programming week looks like you're squatting twice a week, heavy deadlift pull, power clean, a vertical press, and a horizontal bench press 
along with some basic conditioning and some sprint and some work. accessory like there will be uh-huh. pull-ups and stuff um for the most part this is not uncommon and i'm sure matt will jump in on the mechanisms but for the most part what we found uh when people start having that and i believe it kind of runs into that medial like ulnar nerve comes a lot from over gripping and really pushing down and sometimes in the barbell back squat actually many times getting yourself into a position and then torquing your hand down and putting a ton of stress on that elbow. And um, I've seen this happen at least if it's not a dozen, it's two dozen times to different people. And by almost correcting and dropping the elbow down and engaging the lat and driving the hand up instead of torquing your arm down on top of the bar, it tends to fix some stuff. Uh, the other thing we'll do is on the pressing and the and the pull-ups, the accessory stuff, actually doing going to a thumb over grip so that you don't engage and start squeezing it because sometimes the thumb becomes a, a factor. So there's some modifications to not only how we're doing it, but also we'd probably need to be able to see some technique on the back. That's from the layman. Let's hear from the doc. <laughs> yeah, an individualized approach is always going to be key to solving these issues. But I think it's it's great to qualify here that any type of pain, symptom, or sensation that we feel, it's just information that our body's telling us, right, of how we can actually um, improve our movement patterns, right, and get ourselves out of pain. So um, it doesn't sound like he's at the point of, like, actual injury, which is great, right? The signals are occurring. Now is the time to actually take these signals into consideration and figure out what's going on to put a plan intact to get out of it as well. Uh, but the big thing with the elbow joint, and I, I was actually really excited about this one to finally come on here and talk about something other than feet. Um, but I'm- <laughs> Well, just because you have a foot fetish. <laughs> still low key. I still yeah. think it's low key. Um, even though we produced a course on it and everything, I think still think it's going to be, it's, it's ever in development, right? It's always yeah. evolving. Um, but the elbow joint is essentially like the knee of the lower body, right? So of the elbow, the upper body, um, it's the site of a lot of the problems and a lot of issues, but it's never really the source where the source in the lower body is coming from the foot and the ankle or into the hip. Uh, when it comes to the upper body, it's these limitations at the wrist and the hand and also the shoulder and the upper back that tend to be the driving force behind these elbow problems. And what I commonly see across the board is it comes down to three issues. It's either a lack of uh, mobility and stability in the wrist, a lack of mobility or stability in the shoulder, and also correlating with that weak upper back, so a really, really weak upper back. And then the last one being uh, grip strength. So grip strength tends to become the limiting factor there with that one. And then you can start to tie in all these different um, mechanical issues that can occur um, from a setup standpoint with each of these lifts. So it sounds like uh, at least the mechanisms, um, what, what was pretty interesting is he didn't necessarily say, hey, my elbow hurts when I'm doing this lift. He actually referenced like not only shaking hands opening jars and what was the other one pouring a cup of coffee so i was kind of thinking like everything is grip related right you're going to need a grip for rotation you're going to need a grip to squeeze so i'm wondering uh like it's pretty interesting like uh, for the most part when i've encountered this it's always been like hey when i get into this position uh i can feel it uh you know like hey like here's something i'm having while i'm doing this i have never had anybody be like hey the program's going great i just can't open a jar And then I'm always like, hmm, that's an interesting one. Like, it's interesting that he gave us mechanisms that were outside the actual lifting. Yeah, well, I think that just uh, that just highlights like a stress load problem. Right. So essentially is 
he's taken those tissues that are around the elbow joint. Now, mind you, the elbow joint is made up of the humerus, the race and the ulna, but there are also 16 different muscles that cross it. So there's, there's a lot going on in there along with the nervous system running through there, uh, different nerves running down into the hand. But if you continually overstress certain tissues due to mechanical issues or poor technique, they're eventually going to start screaming at you. So I like to give this as like an analogy of having a window open. So initially, when you start moving, you start training in a, a specific program, you have a lot of room for movement until you cross a threshold that stimulates the tissues enough to where your brain is telling you about it. Right. But when we start to, um, when we start to experience pain or we, we hurt ourselves, we have to take a step back, that window starts closing on us. And as the window closes, now even the littlest movements will cross that threshold in the tissues and your brain's telling you about it, like opening up a jar or pouring a cup of coffee at this point. Mm-hmm. So these are more uh, physical representations of this injury or maybe the fact that he's doing these yeah. things after he trains and maybe it's not causing him discomfort, but maybe there's like a downstream mm-hmm. effect. Yeah, totally. And I think that's where you kind of have to figure out what's going, what structures are involved in the elbow. Um, because especially on the inside of the elbow, you got your flexor wad, right? So all the muscles that essentially curl your wrist and flex your fingers are inside the elbow on the, um, the ulnar medial side. But then you also have the ulnar collateral ligament, which we see repaired with like a lot of Tommy John surgeries and baseball pitchers. But then you also have the ulnar nerve. And what's interesting about the ulnar nerve, if that thing is involved, you will feel a lot of these this burning sensation occurring or this radiating maybe down into the pinky finger on occasion as well. Uh, And it's because that nerve isn't really much, it's not well protected. No, it sits in that little groove. And I only know this because mine mine actually will get, uh, will kind of pop out and get displaced and I'll go to bend my elbow and it'll get kind of stuck. And then I kind of go and I straighten and I push it back and then my elbow bends. Mm -hmm. And that's, yeah, that's, it's, it's really interesting. So like if you bend your elbow, like like doing a bicep curl, that nerve actually gets compressed by like 55%. And every time we compress the nerve, it becomes very ischemic in nature, which it means it lacks oxygen, lacks blood flow. And your nerves are like vampires. They love all that shit. They love blood flow. They don't have their own blood supply. So for constantly doing movement patterns, um, coupled with poor technique or mobility limitations, you will start to see overuse and overcompression of this ulnar nerve, i.e. doing bicep curls or bench pressing with all this repeated flexion, pull-ups, um, actually even catching a power clean in a front rack position. Also a very a common uh, issue if you don't have enough in the wrist or in the shoulder to handle that. And over time, nerves going to get pissed off. Yeah, no, we were uh, we have a ski erg and, I, and uh, Bobby Maximus, uh, Rob McDonald sent me uh, these times that he was trying to set the world record for like the 500 mm-hmm. meters in the ski erg. So he sent me all these challenges and all these workouts and I started doing it and he was using this kind of interesting like butterfly technique on it where you bring it in, you kind of like float up. And uh, I was trying to to use the technique he was using instead of just basically pushing and pulling and like I know how to do in mm-hmm. straight lines. And uh, all of a sudden, man, my elbow, like that thing happened and it's been something I've dealt with ever since. But I know what it was, was I was snapping out my elbows this way for hundreds mm-hmm. of reps, you know, trying to fucking set the world record on a skier, a stand up skier. But uh, yeah, no, like that's one of those where, you know, like all of a sudden it happened and I was like, oh, fuck, I know exactly what I did. And I know it sits in that little groove and I've seen that it, people have that injury for mm-hmm. a number of years. And it's just, you guys kind of got to pop it back in. 
but yeah, no, yeah. it's uh, don't do stupid. You shit try and like tell that. me you uh, you try and tell me you didn't look like Michael Phelps on that thing. Well, I, it was weird. Like I was watching him, and uh, he was doing this like interesting kind of like butterfly floating technique with it, and I was like, oh, that doesn't look bad. Let me try it. No, nah, I shouldn't have done that shit. I should have just stayed in a straight line and pushed and pulled like I know how to do. Um, but you yeah. know, it just it was funny. But yeah, I remember being like, all right, I'm gonna not do that technique again. Probably the you know same reason that. You know, people, uh, you know, end up tearing, you know, labrums when they fall, you know, off a dynamic eccentric load on a pull up. Yeah, yeah. You know, they do a kipping pull up and as they're coming down, they don't have the strength and musculature to control it. And they get that shock, you know, shock motion. And next thing you know, they tear a labrum. And, you know, I believe me, I got more than enough clients that have been like, oh, I uh, tore a labrum. And then you explain like, well, how did you do it? And then it's usually within that mechanism. So is this um, I mean, uh, like we we still want him to continue to train. So he, he's riding on his linear progression. We have to do it. So like making some modifications, like on the barbell back squat, don't grab. I mean, and, and I'll even recommend uh, like kind of keep a looser grip on the barbell. Keep the elbow pointed straight down and drive up engaging the lat. Don't press. And what that happens is, is when you press the bar forward, it ends up pushing your upper back and creating that kyphosis mm-hmm. that Matt was uh, talking about. So remember, yeah. big chest create. And, and as soon as you said weak upper back, I was like, well, that could be a position from driving forward and creating that kyphosis. So being strong upper back, elbows pointed down, driving straight up and not over gripping the bar when you press. The other thing I found with people with, with elbow injuries when they were doing pressing, uh, we went to an axle bar, which was a fat bar. And actually had them wrap their thumb, not around, but on the other side. So they created a cup and then they just pressed and that tended to take a ton of stress off the elbow. So that one, and then, uh, using some straps, uh, in the deadlift that we found that the over gripping and the really grabbing. So either you do a thumb grip, uh, or use a strap to try to take some stress off of the elbow, off the thumb. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think that it's great because a lot of those modifications will allow him to keep moving, which is the. The ultimate goal here, right? Like rest is never the answer, but we do have to take some stress off of those tissues by changing up what the grip is looking like temporarily. So that could look like everything that you just mentioned. It could like look like doing deadlifts with a trap bar. So you're in more of a neutral grip. Sure. Um, same thing with any type of pull motions as well. Like you now some of these pull up bars now you can do a palm facing each other into a neutral grip. Um, the axle bar is great. I actually really, really like the, uh, the football bar as well. Mm-hmm. So if you have access to something like that, you could actually even change the angle and the orientation of the elbow, shoulder and wrist up in a more, uh, neutral position, which actually puts your shoulder in a better position to work efficiently, uh, as well. But then in the meantime too, like dumbbells are great. Cause then you could even change the orientation, of the wrist up with those and doing some like flat bench or incline bench pressing is also an, another option as well. But that being said, this is great because he's going to keep moving, but then you still need to address the underlying issues. Like what is happening at the wrist and the elbow, what is happening at the shoulder. Um, and even with the back squat, John too, like keeping the, the elbow more vertical and engaging the lat is great unless you can't get there and you have to resort to extending your wrist completely back. Sure. Sure. Yeah. Because yeah. Because now because now what's going to happen is, well, you're, you're torquing at the shoulder, but you don't have enough of the shoulder external rotation there. Stress is going to go down to the elbow. But then if you have to extend your wrist fully to be able to get into that position, now we have a flexed elbow, putting tension on it at, locally at the elbow joint, that flexor group of the, of the forearm muscles. And now you're putting them on complete stretch as well under load, <laughs> mind you, the barbell up at the wrist is, uh, at the same time. So you end up getting this tensioning 
at the nerve tensioning at those um, tendinous junctions with the muscles they come into the bone and that will tend to aggravate things as well so if that becomes a problem like obviously those are, these are limiting factors that we need to address um, but if you have something like a safety squat bar yeah is also another great option where you don't have to worry about that hand position so the uh um years ago i remember uh reading something from by louis simmons on the safety squat bar and the reason they went to so much work on the safety squat bar was that they felt that the traditional barbell back squat was creating so much elbow discomfort and tennis elbow um, i guess he's, he called it lifter's elbow yeah. i kind of think in the same same deal that it was inhibiting their ability to bench press so they found that like the bench press wasn't hurting their elbow none of the other work it was actually the torquing and the position on the barbell back squat so that's why they went to the safety bar squat and then it fixed all those issues so i thought that that's a pretty interesting modification if uh you have access to that uh maybe throw that in in your linear progression and try to do it and see if taking that stress in the barbell back squat and then at least then you can kind of start doing a little bit of investigative work and being like okay what's the mechanism is it the back squat and the positioning that's hurting me is it the uh, uh you know the grip on the deadlift like you said is it the you know overhand versus uh supinated grip i mean like all these other factors going to a neutral grip mm -hmm. and then also on the bench press you know finding something neutral like a football bar so um the the real magic especially when you start looking at like different implements like a football bar and a safety squad and maybe a trap bar and some of these other movements is that they are getting us to do conventional movements in unconventional patterns and uh, mm -hmm. i'm sure matt will talk about um you know could Dude, I, I know you can get into this into nauseum about um, <laughs> the idea of like repetitive movement patterns can, you know, basically creating pain and dysfunction. And a lot of what Matt does with, with getting people out of pain is getting you out of these traditional patterns into new ones. Uh, so I think sometimes just changing up the bars and, you know, people want to call it a conjugate system, but it's really just. Hey, I, I have this dysfunction. I've been in this movement pattern. Now I'm going to change the stimulus. I'm going to change the loading. I'm going to change the pattern to potentially create a positive effect and then get me out of pain. Mm-hmm. So what I hear you saying is that you need to create more variety. Yeah. I, <laughs> and, I, yes. Well, what I'm saying. <laughs> there, there are so many ways to do that too. Like you can create a lot of variety inside of a program like Bedrock, just like you explained of changing up the implements as well, but you can also change up some of the, the movement patterns and why they're and how they're executed while still achieving the end result of the bedrock program. So if you think about it, like, especially when it comes to the upper body, we do a lot of open chain work, right? So there's a lot of moving the wrist, the elbow on a fixed shoulder. So think about bench pressing, think about pressing overhead, um, really anything for that matter versus a closed chain pattern. So that open chain is then coupled with everything we do for life, like brushing our hair, brushing our teeth, reaching into the fridge, trying to grab something out of a cabinet. Once again, moving the wrist and the elbow on a close or a fixed shoulder. But how many times do we actually fix the hand in place and then move the shoulder and the elbow around the fixed hand? Well, when we do push-ups or any type of like push -ups. In, you know ch chest elevated push-ups, I mean, mm -hmm. uh, anybody that's had a shoulder injury or even a shoulder surgery uh, has uh, like seen that the majority of the rehab work tends to come from closed chain movements where my hands are on the ground, I'm stable because there's too much variation with a, with an open chain movement. And then we have to consider whether or not the closed chain movements are actually being executed in a way that's not pissing off the elbow and the shoulder too. That is very true. Right? Look, so, people are so shitty at doing pull up or I'm sorry, pushups. <laughs> Like I, I, example. I constantly see pick, uh, video and, and uh, videos of people doing push-ups and being like, man, people do not understand how to do push-ups. 
You mean like humping the ground? That's that's my favorite uh, one. Um, my favorite is like just- <laughs> is like the thumb. Like the, what they do is they rotate the thumb so they're chasing, and then they get in this weird like corkscrew thing. And I watch it, and I'm yeah. like, man, that's fucking weird. Well, that's that's just the body. It's you can't fault it, right? The the brain is trying to find the path of least resistance. It wants to be efficient, so it's only using what it knows how to use. Um, that's where having a good coach comes in handy. But I'm going to do it now. I'm going to make another relation to the feet. Here we go again. So. With the foot, we know that putting pressure in certain areas of the foot is going to change the way the hip functions, right? So if you put more pressure into the big toe, you can get a little bit more rotational capacity out of the hip. Same thing with having more pressure into the midfoot. You can be able to access um, more of the posterior chain, more of the, um, the stabilizers in the frontal and transverse planes of the hip, and you get better centration out of it, meaning that, you, meaning that it is more efficient. You're not just wearing away at certain joint surfaces over and over and over again. We commonly can view the hip as a ball and socket joint, but we often forget that the shoulder is also a ball and socket joint. And it's even um, the, the muscular coordination and the motor control is even more valuable there as well. So you get different patterns of recruitment based on what, where the pressure is at in the hands. So what you typically see in push-ups as a great example is people have all the weight on the lateral aspect next to the pinky and into the heel. That you're typically going to get a lot more of um, posterior shoulder activation, but then you're also going to get a lot more of that ulnar nerve there on the inside since you have all of that uh, pressure over the pinky side of the hand versus if you're in a push-up position, like consciously shifting the pressure where you feel it to the pointer finger and knuckle and also the thumb. So that meaty thanar eminence there. So that web space in between the pointer knuckle and the thumb is a good place to start because then you can get more rotation through the shoulder. And that actually activates a lot more of the periscapular stabilizer. So you get your serratus involved, you get your low trap involved and actually push the shoulder into a really good position. And then you'll see the shoulder start to move and rotate like it's designed to unlike what you just described of kicking the elbow out and dumping the shoulder forward to try and find some sense of stability in the joint. Cool. Yeah. There's, it's, so there's some, there's some jiggy shit with it, which is why I love the human body. That's all, all a puzzle. Um, and being able to then retrain essentially these different aspects of the movement spectrum that people don't even have any awareness of. Is, is there any, um, is there any, like, uh, I mean, we've obviously been talking about movement solutions, but, um, you mm-hmm. know, maybe getting some ART work done or maybe a, a little bit of like myofascial scraping. Um, I yeah. mean, the other one would be maybe try to take some Aleve, uh, you know, maybe, uh, two or th- two Aleve twice a day, drink a ton of water and see how that feels. Um, the other big one would be like, uh, warming up the tissue, you know, maybe covering it up with like, uh, an elbow mm-hmm. sleeve or maybe even putting like a little bit of the algesic on there to try to warm it up and then doing a bunch of like, like uh, not a bunch, but like, you know, maybe some banded uh, tricep extensions to kind of warm up the elbows, get the triceps functioning and, you know, drive a little bit of blood yeah. into it. Yeah, I think I think that's all great. I would I would try and stay away from a lot of the medications if you can. I mean, it's great if you want to use it for a couple of days, yeah. especially after you start feeling symptoms. But this is a chronic issue. There's no longer any inflammation in there. So there's no need to take the anti-inflammatories um, aside from just some maybe placebo pain relief with it. Uh, that being said, I think that the compression is great because it will allow some more um, lymphatic drainage to occur to get the waste out and everything. But you, what you're alluding to is using movement to pump blood flow through the area. And I think that that is extremely beneficial, especially if you do something like some BFR, some blood flow restriction training there uh, for the elbow. It's really, really 
easy to set up, set that up and get a lot of the, the beneficial aspects of it, like the growth hormone release and the testosterone release, um, into the arm to start to spark that healing response. Okay. All right. So, uh, to kind of recap, um, you know, he's obviously dealing with an injury coming off a of bedrock that potentially mm-hmm. looks like an overuse injury due to, you know, maybe some improper technique or getting into bad, some bad movement patterns. And so by fixing those movement patterns and focusing on maybe relaxing the grip and a few different movements that look like barbell back squatting, pressing, and maybe using some other implements to try to take him out of those movement patterns that are causing pain, he could effectively fix himself. And maybe there are some other solutions. Cool. Yeah. Yeah, totally. Totally. And at the end of the day, um, Right now, he's he's on fire. Essentially, the elbow joint's on fire, so you have to put the fire out first before you can start really attacking it because I would love to see him improve the grip strength and get it to where, like, ideally, you should be able to carry your body weight in each hand for, like, 15 to 20 meters. Mm-hmm. Like that's what we see in the literature as being really, really um, beneficial for grip strength and kind of that gold standard. So there are ways that you can start to progressively overload that as well by taking, like, anywhere from 60 to 75% of your body weight throwing it in each hand and doing different bouts and building the anaerobic capacity of like 10 to 15 meters over time. And you'll eventually start to develop that grip strength. Um, hanging from a bar is also really great. Um, but yeah, so, so taking the, taking the load and stress off the joint and initially in this first phase is going to be where you need to go with things. Um, but then it always does help to have somebody take a look at you and figure out where those limitations are actually occurring. So you actually put a plan of attack together and fix this stuff for the long term, rather than just keep going around and around and around this vicious cycle um, where the tissues get better and then they get jacked up again, get better, jacked up again for eternity. <laughs> well, uh, he is falling bedrock, so he should be posting yeah. uh, his lifts well, that's, on the that's bedrock feed on Train Heroic or tagging Perfect. Power Athlete or John Wellborn or, you know, McQuilkin on Instagram so we can chime in. I mean, I get a ton of people tagging me on stuff and I'm always happy to give feedback. But I think if you're on the bedrock program, you should be posting not only your back squat, your deadlift and all the other mm-hmm. different movements so we can jump in and coach. Yeah. And hell tag me in it too. I'll take a look at it. That's, that's what I was looking (laughs) for on our, and that's our, all of our training programs have a team feed, which is your opportunity to post your progress, your lifts, or if you're on Jack street, just talk a little trash. But in respect to bedrock, it is an amazing opportunity for us to fix and correct your setup. That program is great for people that are being introduced to the barbell for the first time. And that may be their their old taking their old school ball ball coaches technique that they remember and trying to execute it like they know what a strict press is. But we have the watchful eye to put you in the proper positions so you can move pain free. Awesome. And at the the same time, this program and Matt and I have discussed this a lot off air. The value of the bedrock program for a return to play or a return from surgery and injury. Cause it's so consistent with the movement and you have the opportunity under a very heavy load to regain your confidence in that new knee, elbow, shoulder, whatever the injury may have healed, uh, or surgery. It's a beautiful program that man, we can't talk enough about. Well, thanks for leaving your question on the hotline. And that hotline number is 929-464-464. 
And that's uh, that's the Power Athlete Hotline. If you have a question, you want answers, you are being perplexed and need somebody to help you, and, and we have to reach out to Dr. Mazanis, anything that you need, hit the hotline, that 929-464-4640. Leave us a question. We'll answer it, and we'll blow your minds in the in the process. So thanks, Doc, for coming on. I appreciate it, Z. And uh, yeah, Matt, for having me on again, guys. Yeah. Matt, yeah, share us your Instagram with our audience so if they are a new yeah. listener, they know where to find you. Yeah, you could always find me at Rooted in Movement. That's the handle. And movement, there is no vowels. It's just an acronym, M-V-M-N-T. Stands for Movement, Vitality, Mindset, Nutrition, and Training. So mm. always always happy to, uh, to reach out on there and hit me up with any questions that you have. Tag me in videos. Always, always looking to provide feedback and uh, answer any questions here on air, too. It's, it's a lot of fun for me as well. And no shortage of shirtless hair ponytail picks. Oh, I, I love it. I, oh. I, I worship his whole collection. Man, oh, there it man is. Man bun today, bro. Bro pone? The bro po. Yeah. It's good. Po. All right. Hey, you missed it when I had it braided. Did, oh. did we really miss it? Did we really miss yeah. it? Nah, Dude, I felt like a fucking Viking. Yeah. yeah. Did I mean, did, did you pull it over one shoulder? <laughs> There were two. Uh, so it came down like handlebars. Oh, like ponytails. <laughs> mm. Is yeah, you? Let me guess. Grade. There, there's so much. There's, there's so far we can go with this. We'll just leave it alone because uh, we're out of time. Thanks, for, thanks, Stay Power Athlete Nation, time. for another episode of the Premier Podcast <laughs> in Strength and Conditioning. Bye. Now it's time for you to empower your performance. Head to powerathletehq.com backslash training to choose from a number of programs to meet your specific performance goals. And if you like to break a mental sweat too, visit academy.powerathletehq.com and become a real stakeholder in you or your athlete's success. Until next time, bye!